I'd like to read a couple of verses from Jeremiah chapter 32. Not unfamiliar verses to us. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, and by your outstretched arms nothing is too difficult for you, who show lo loving kindness to thousands, but repay the iniquity of the fathers to the bosom of their children after them, O great and mighty Lord. The Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Our Father, we're thankful that you are the one who is great and mighty, and we come to worship you, especially this time of the year when we Remember the birth of, the, of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, into the human race. We're thankful for the one who came as Emmanuel. And Lord, we ask that as we focus our attention this morning on your word, that the Spirit of God will help us to see the truth of what it is you, you have done and said to your people throughout history because it is consistent, it is unchanging that your words are the same yesterday, today, and forever, even as you are. Lord, the scripture tells us that forever your word is settled in heaven. And so we know that we are looking at the eternal word of God and that you have given it for our instruction and our, for our direction and for our benefit. So give us insight and understanding this day, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Today my goal will be to uh, finish First uh, Samuel. We will read chapter 31 at verse 1 again. We touched on this uh, last week at the end of class. 1 Samuel chapter 31, re uh, reading at verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. These verses that we're looking at here describe the climax of the battle of Mount Gilboa. Probably the Israelites had fought on the mountain in an attempt to avoid fighting on the plain. Here's Mount Gilboa right here, and the uh, Philistines had been camped right here. And, and this valley here, the Jezreel Valley, is pretty flat. And the Philistines had chariots. And so the Israelites wanted to reduce the influence of chariots by not fighting on the valley floor, but up on the mountain itself. Now, Mount Gilboa is not a, you know, sheep, a steep uh, crag or anything. It's a sloping hill, so the chariots could roll up on the mountain. But they don't, they're not as effective fighting on hillsides, you know. You turn your chariot just wrong and uh, you're down the mountain. So anyway, the battle took place right about where the word mount is there on Mount Gilboa as best as we can tell. And so what happened was the Philistines came up the mountain to Israel rather than Israel going down the mountain to fight against the Philistines. That seems to be the strategy which worked out here. 
Whatever the case, we find in this chapter or in, in these verses that the Israelites are in full rout. The Philistines have crushed them and defeated them. The, the Israelites are fleeing from in front of the attacking Philistines. And as they fled, Saul and his three sons, who were probably sort of in a clump together, were left exposed to the full brunt of the Philistine attack. And the scripture specifically tells us that the archers hit them. All of these armies not only fought with spears and swords and clubs and knives, but they also fought with archers as part of the uh, fighting element. And of course, in Israel's case, they also fought usually with slingers, although none are mentioned in this particular passage. I think the archers who wounded Saul had already finished off his three sons. And so here was Saul watching his sons dying, uh, much like Custer at his last stand at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, a standing a tragic figure with everybody dead around him except for himself and his armor bearer. It was a very, very sad scene. His wounds were apparently severe enough that he could not flee. Now, I have to remember something we don't often picture when we think about this. This man has got to be at least 70. Saul has got to be at least 70 here because he's already reigned for 40 years and he was about 30 when he became king. So look, we're looking at a 70-year-old man here on the mountain. So he's not exactly going to hightail it off the mountain like a 20-year-old, uh, you know, especially with arrows sticking out of him. <laughs> Just a kid. Just a kid, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't dead, but he couldn't flee. So he felt his only option was to have himself killed so that the Philistines would not torture him before they finished him off, which they, he felt they would do. And so he, we have this horrifying conversation between Saul and his armor bearer, asking his armor bearer, would you please pierce me through, finish me off, so that the enemy will not be able to make sport of me, as he says there. But the armor bearer will, will not do it. Is it because the armor bearer, like David, viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed and he would not lift up his hand against the Lord's anointed? Well, maybe. We don't know that. doesn't say. All we do know is that he refused to kill Saul. tells us that he was afraid to kill Saul for whatever the reason might be. And so Saul, here, this, this, this great first king of all Israel, tragic figure, is forced to fall on his own sword in order to finish himself off. Take his own life. The one redeeming factor here was that Saul had the honor of dying on the battlefield in defense of his country. He was not hit running. He, was, he, he died facing the enemy. To provide for the defense of Israel had been one of the primary motivations for Israelites demanding a king in the very first place. And so he died doing what he had been called to do by his people. From the human perspective, however, that Jonathan should die tragically on this mountain, primarily because of the folly of his father here. As we read in Chronicles last week, uh, the reason for the defeat was largely because Saul, of Saul's disobedience and because he sought guidance from a witch rather than from the Lord God in obedience to the Lord God. And, and that Jonathan should die seems to be the greatest tragedy here. Matthew Henry gives an interesting insight here. He says, Jonathan, that wise, valiant, good man, was as much David's friend as Saul was his enemy, and he falls with the rest. Duty to his father would not permit him to stay home or to retire when the army's engaged. If the family must fall, 
Jonathan must fall with it. He would hereby make David's way to the crown more clear and open. For though Jonathan himself would have cheerfully resigned all his title, yet it is probable that many of the people would have made use of his name for the support of the house of Saul. And we're going to see that in effect as we get into the next book because there is yet a son. Well, I'm coming to that. Uh, With the death of Jonathan, it didn't really completely clear the way because on the mountain fell Saul and three of his sons, but Saul had a fourth son. And that fourth son is not on the mountain here. Let me read from 1 Chronicles chapter 8. 1 Chronicles chapter 8 at verse 33, we read these words. And Ner became the father of Kish, and Kish became the father of Saul, and Saul became the father of Jonathan, Malchishua, Abinadab, and Eshbaal. Eshbaal. So he had four sons, three of whom died on the mountain, but there is yet a fourth son. Eshbaal means man of Baal or Baal. I think when it says that the sins of the father will not be passed on to the next generation means the guilt of the sin of the father will not be passed on, but the repercussions may be passed on. And I think there's a difference between the guilt and the repercussion. I might do something very, very foolish that results in the death of innocent people in my own family, and that's a repercussion that impacts them, but the sin that I committed in doing that foolish thing will not be uh, passed on to them. I, I think that's what it, what it means. It is tragic that we, do, we don't know anything about Malchishua and Abinadab, those two sons, what they were like, but we do know what Jonathan was like. He seemed like such a godly man that that he should have been exempted. If Eshbaal is exempted, why isn't Jonathan, you know, exempted? So I can understand your, your thoughts there. The word Eshbaal means man of Baal, or Baal. And he was either not at the Battle of Mount Gilboa or somehow he did escape. If he were at the battle and he escaped, <laughs> I don't know why they would want anybody to want him king because he, that means he didn't stand with his brothers and his father to, to try to hold out to the end. But I think he wasn't there. I think really that he wasn't at the battle for whatever reason. Supporters of the family of Saul will proclaim Eshbaal to be the next king of Israel. And he will end up being king over the northern tribes, the tribes up here in the north. Judah will proclaim David, as we shall see. But uh, they will proclaim Eshbaal because he was the son of Saul, the first king, to be king. And this will result in a civil war which will break out in Israel, which will further delay the fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy that David would become the king over all Israel. It's interesting that in 2 Samuel we find that Eshbaal, which is the name given to him in uh, Chronicles, is related to us as Ishbosheth, man of shame. He is called man of shame, and I think he was referred to as man of shame by his opponents. And the, the, the reason, reasons were at least two. First of all, he knew, certainly he knew, that David had been anointed by Samuel to succeed Saul as king, and yet he was willing to be, allow himself to be anointed to succeed his father, which was a shameful thing. And the second thing 
is that uh, if, if he is a man of Baal in a land committed to Yahweh, he is obviously a man of shame. And he lives up to his name. As we read on the last seven, half a dozen verses or so, of the chapter beginning at verse 7. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. And it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. With their king dead and their army scattered, the Israelites who lived nearby felt as if they were exposed and undefended. The phrase on the other side of the valley, which we read about there in the first line of uh, the seventh verse, is a bit imprecise. Which valley are we talking about? It's possible, of course, that the Jezreel Valley is met. Here's the Jezreel Valley. That's a possibility. That's the main valley. That's till today, the heart valley of all of Israel, the most productive valley in all of Israel. But Mount Gilboa also overlooks a stream that runs out of the Jezreel Valley, flows down through the Bethshan Valley to the Jordan River. It's called the Nahal Harod, H-A-R-O-D. It generates out of what are known as the springs of Harod at the base of Mount Gilboa and flows down through the Bethshan Valley. It's possible the mention of the Bethshan Valley is important because right over here is a city called Bethshan, which we saw in the passage, uh, plays a key role in what uh, transpires. I think that what we're looking at is the uh, possibility that several valleys are being inferred here in this passage. The scope of the Philistine invasion, the scope of the victory was so great that it wasn't isolated to just the southern edge of the Jezreel Valley, but certainly it impacted the Bethshan Valley and the northern part of the Jordan Valley. So we're probably talking about all of this region in here being the valley that's being referred to here in this particular passage. We're told in the passage here that Israelites beyond the Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, were so frightened by the events which transpired that they fled from their cities, from their towns, away. Probably moved up the plateau to the top from the lower valley in here and probably fled up this way in order to escape the coming onslaught of the Philistines. They knew the Philistines to be harsh taskmasters. They knew that life under the Philistines would be worse than life out in the boondocks, fleeing your town, leaving your shop and your field and your everything else and just going. It's better to live out in the open without uh, your home and everything else than it would be to live under Philistine rule. However, what happens here is that we discover that Israel is divided now. The Philistines occupy the whole plain here. 
Here's the Philistine plain, which is the heartland of the Philistines. They also controlled the plain of Sharon. And uh, they had penetrated through this part of the Shephelah. These are low rolling hills through which there were several uh, passes. And uh, so they, they controlled here and they controlled all the way through here. So they, they controlled a strip this way. They controlled the coast and now a strip across this way. So what have they done? They've divided Israel in half. Now you have uh, the Galilee area up here separated from the Ephraim and Judean areas down here by the Philistine presence right through the middle of the country here. So anybody in this part of the country who wanted to go to Galilee would have to go clear over into Gilead over here and around because now the Philistines occupied the central area there. One of the big problems that modern Israel has, you know, this whole question about the West Bank you, you hear about all the time, is that when the West Bank is occupied and becomes a Palestine, Palestinian state, from the edge of the West Bank to the sea is a very narrow strip of land. And so the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel could easily be cut off on that narrow strip of plain with modern weapons, tanks and all the rest of it. I mean, you can roll a tank in half an hour across what's left of Israel between the coast and the West Bank. And so that's why Israel is very edgy about this whole thing and probably not wise to give the West Bank to anybody. But that's all part of modern politics. <coughs> so what we have here is a situation where the Philistines are now poised for the possible occupation of the whole land. They can now strike north into Galilee. They can strike south into Ephraim and Judea. So Israel is in a very, very tenuous position. Well, this passage tells us what happens when the battle is over. The victors set out to collect the spoils of war. They went out to strip the slain, the dead that were lying all over the hillside, to take the jewelry, uh, to take the weapons and the armor, to even take the clothing from off the fallen Israelite soldiers. If you go back through history, now, if we go back to World War II, in World War II, American soldiers came home sometimes with a captured Nazi flag or a, or a captured Japanese samurai sword, and they brought it home as kind of a, of a trophy of war. But you go back uh, just a short time in history, and for all of history, back as far as you can go, all armies, when they defeat the enemy, usually traveling with the army is a bunch of human vultures. Most armies travel with large groups of other people attached to the army who serve the army in various ways. And, and one of those groups was to uh, take the prisoners of war and sell them into slavery. That got rid of the whole POW problem. See, An army didn't have to worry about POWs because the slave traders carried them off and sold them into the slave market, so they were gone. And these other, these Camp followers also then stripped the bodies of the slain almost the moment they were killed. In fact, they often stripped the bodies before they were even cold. There are accounts, for example, in the, in the Napoleonic War, where, I mean, they're still fighting on the battlefield, and these people are out here stripping the dead people off the ground, taking everything all the way down to bare skin of these soldiers. And so what we, what we have here are the Philistines themselves. Apparently they didn't have a pack of camp followers with them at that time, so the soldiers are out here looting the dead themselves. And as they come along, they find Saul and they find his three sons. And are they happy? They are jubilant because they have now slain the man who's been a thorn in their side for 40 years. 
a man who at one time, who, whose commander of his army had slain their giant and who had led their armies, Israelite armies, into victory after victory. And even Saul had defeated the Philistine in many of his battles. And so Saul was a giant pain. So what they did was <coughs> decapitated the four bodies of Saul and his three sons. And in order to validate their victory, they sent the armor, the weapons, and the heads on a touring exposition through Philistia. Sort of like the treasures of King Tut or something. Traveling through the countryside, look at the display, proving our great victory. And the scripture tells us that these trophies went to the temples. Why did they go to the temples? Well, one reason they went to the temples was to honor their gods who had given them the victory. We know this because, remember uh, back earlier in 1 Samuel, the fifth chapter, actually about 80 years before this, uh, when at Aphek, over here on the coast, near the coast, Israel had been defeated by the Philistines even when the Ark of the Covenant had come into the battle during the days of Eli. And um, the Ark was captured. And remember, they took the Ark and they took it into the house of their god Dagon in Ashdod as a trophy. Of course, what happened after that is a bit different, but this is reminiscent of that. And so they're parading the weapons, they're parading the heads, they're parading the armor of these three, four men. When the tour was over, the Philistines put the weapons and the armor of Saul and his sons, uh, of Saul, we're told in this passage. It doesn't say what happened with the armor and weapons of his sons, but probably the same thing, uh, were placed in the temple of Ashtaroth. Oh, we remember Ashtaroth is sort of the female version of Baal. And Dagon is simply one of the manifestations of Baal. And so we don't know what city. Could have been in any one of the five uh, Philistian uh, capital cities, the, the major cities of the Pentapolis. As, as sort of a permanent offering. Here are these weapons, this armor, a permanent offering to you, our lady goddess, because you have brought us this great victory. In chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles, we discover that Saul's head, his head, was placed in the temple of Dagon. Doesn't say in what city. Could be Gaza, could be uh, Ashdod. We know there were temples of Dagon in those two cities where it was permanently kept. In the meantime, the Philistines take the headless, stripped bodies of Saul and his three sons, and they go to the city of Bashan, which the Israelites have vacated because of the onslaught of the Philistines, which the Philistines occupy, and then they hang on the outside of the wall of the cities these four decapitated bodies. The idea was that this would be the ultimate humiliation to allow their bodies to disintegrate in full public view, exposed to the elements and to the birds of prey. Here's Beth Sean. You'll notice the red line around it indicates that it wasn't part of Saul's kingdom at this point. Actually, you could stretch the, the red line out around like this and say this part through here was not either because the Philistines occupied it at this particular time. David will have them unoccupy it, but at this point they do. So here's Bashan. Bashan is a very impressive tell today. If you go visit the site of Bashan, it just rises very dramatically uh, there on the edge of the uh, Bashan Valley. <coughs> the city, though, that is mentioned in this passage that is, is uh, important is the city of Jabesh Gilead, located right here. It's about 13 miles from Jabesh Gilead to Bashan. 
Jabesh Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan River. That it should be men of Bashan who risked their lives to end the humiliation of the king is kind of ironic. If we remember back to the days of the judges, I, remember, I know that's hard to remember back to because that's way back about two years ago. But in the days of the judges, about a century before the time we're talking about, it was Jabesh Gilead that had refused to send troops to help Israel crush the Benjamite rebellion. Remember when there was this sort of a homosexual uprising in, uh, in uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, rather than purging that element, decided to defend that element. There was a big war between Benjamin and all the rest of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was ultimately annihilated with the exception of 600 men. This was all of that was left. All of the tribe of Benjamin, men, women, and children, was annihilated except for 600 men. That was all that was left. And the soldiers of Israel, they suddenly realized, we're about ready to wipe out an entire tribe out of our nation. We can't do that. So they decide they better find some wives for these 600 men to propagate the, uh, the tribe. And so they look through their whole register of troops to discover what city didn't send any troops to help them crush Benjamin. It was Jabesh Gilead. And so the whole, they sent an army over there to wipe out the city of Jabesh Gilead with exception of the virgin young ladies. And there were 400 of those and they were taken and given to the uh, Benjamite men. Obviously, by the time we're talking about, which is a hundred or more years later, the city has been repopulated probably by the Gadites because the Jabesh Gilead was in the tribal area of Gad and the reputation of the city is about to be redeemed, you might say, by this heroic act of these men. But it was not their goal to redeem the reputation of the city. That's not why they did what they did. They did what they did to repay Saul for something that he had done for them. We may not remember this, but if you go back earlier into the book of 1 Samuel, back at the beginning of the reign of Saul, Saul delivered this city from an attack of a people known as the Ammonites. I know that as you read the history of the Old Testament, there are an awful lot of ites. You know, Amalekites and Ammonites and Canaanites and Perizzites and and Jebusites and you know, Gibeonites and all the other ites. What's interesting is those peoples were almost all descent, many of them were descendants of Abraham by one means or another. And so fighting then, fighting now, it's, you know, uh, the children of Abraham have been fighting for a very long time. The Ammonites, you may remember, were the children of Ben-Ami and Ben-Ami was a uh, son of Lot, Lot by his own daughter, remember? Lot and his daughter, both of his daughters, uh, after Sodom was destroyed, uh, the two daughters thought they were never going to have husbands, so we better get pregnant by our father. Remember, they got him drunk and they both got pregnant and out of that came uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Big pain to Israel. Nahash, king of Ammon, had come to the city of Jabesh Gilead and said, you guys surrender to us or we'll destroy you. If you surrender to us, you've got to let us poke out your right eye. 
Well, we read the story back in the 11th chapter of 1 Samuel. When Saul heard about the Ammonite threat to get against Jabesh Gilead, we're told in that passage that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul mightily. <laughs> How unlike the Saul we read about on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. Had the Spirit of the Lord been mighty on Saul on the Mount Gilboa, the Philistines would have been vanquished. They would have been destroyed and wiped out. But God had lifted his hands of protection from off of his people because of their disobedience and their, the fact that they had rejected him. Saul had rejected him. Kind of brings us back to uh, Tina's statement before. You know, you think about the fact that God protects his children. But how many of his children were in the World Trade Center and died? God does protect us individually, but that doesn't mean he protects us in all situations, that there isn't a point in time in which he will take us for, by whatever means it might be. Uh, we can't assume anything, as Israel did many times, to their detriment in, in their history. And I don't know if you heard Anne Graham Lott the other day uh, on, um, she was on uh, Fox Channel, but anyway, she was saying that she felt that what happened was a result of the fact that this nation has turned his back upon God, so God just simply lifted his hands of protection and has allowed this disaster to come, uh, to wake us up, you know. And, and certainly that's what's going to happen to Israel here. They're going to wake up, and they're going to honor David as king. It'll take them a little while here. Their wheels will spin for seven years while they're chasing after Ishbosheth and, and doing, uh, you know, following Abner around and so forth. But, but they will get it together eventually here. When Saul, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon, on, upon Saul mightily, he rallied the troops of Israel and the troops of Israel went and they, they uh, freed Jabesh Gilead from this siege that the Ammonites had established and, and Saul's troops wiped out the Ammonites, completely destroyed the Ammonites. And so the people of Jabesh Gilead were undyingly grateful to Saul for what he had done. This was his first great act as king and laid the foundation for his kingship. What a way to start, you know, with a great victory and the power of the Lord. It was good. Probably wasn't too long after the bodies of Saul and his three sons were hung on the wall that the news of the desecration had reached Jabesh Gilead. It's only 13 miles away. Take too long for the word to get over there about what had it, what it happened. And these men decided, this man delivered our bacon. He saved us. How, how can we allow this humiliation to continue to occur? And so several hundred of the men of Jabesh Gilead armed themselves to the teeth and marched out in the dead of night to walk the 13 miles to Bethshan to see if they could not remove those bodies from the wall of the city. They did this under the cover of darkness. And when they arrived at the walls of Bethshan, the city gates were all shut, of course, because cities in those days always shut the gates at night to keep the city free from marauders. And so these brave men had to carry out a very grisly task. If you could just imagine, you know, I don't, how long have these guys been dead? Well, a few days. They're not uh, in good shape anymore. And hanging out there, exposed to the elements and the birds, <coughs> it was a grisly task, to say the very least. How did they do this? Were they so quiet as they crept up there? And did they have ladders? How did they reach the body? We could imagine all kinds of things. But, but they came up in the middle of the night and, and they st were they so quiet that the sentinels on the city walls never heard them and never saw them? Or is it that the sentinels saw them down there, 
but saw there were, were very lot of them down there and knew that the, that the garrison inside the city, if it were to go streaming out the gate, who knows how many of them are really out there and we might get ambushed and so the sentinels decided not to uh, you know, send the garrison out. We, we don't know exactly the scenario here. All we know is that they were successful in taking the bodies off the wall and carrying them away in the middle of the night. I think God allowed this. God allowed this to happen. Because no matter what Saul had done and how vile he had been, he was still God's anointed king over Israel. And he deserved to have at least a halfway decent burial, which is, of course, all it would turn out to be. They returned home. And the scripture tells us that they burned the bodies of Saul and his three sons. And when they had completed the burning, they took the bones and they buried them at the base of a tamarisk tree, like an oak tree, there outside the walls of Jabesh Gilead. They buried Saul at the spot of his finest hour, when he, under the power of the Lord, had led Israel in a mighty victory over the enemy. Saul's greatest moment is relived by these people as they give him this burial there. And the scripture tells us that to further express their love and respect for this man, that for seven days they fasted. Was that a fast unto the Lord? Or was it simply a fast to honor a man? <coughs> scripture doesn't say. Fasted seven days are the last three words of the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel bears out the truth of the word of the Lord that had been delivered to Eli many years before. And I think this is a statement that God made to Eli that we need to remember to this very day, where he said to him, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, the scripture says, will be lightly esteemed, which is a kind way of saying, will in effect be despised. And that is the prayer that I pray for our president, that he will honor God and God in turn will honor him. So far, I think this is happening, but he's just a man and he's capable of error and mistake and of listening to the wrong voices. And we need to pray that God will keep him, that God will continue to cause him to honor his name and all that he does. So that God in turn will honor him and give him wisdom in leading this country in a very, very difficult time in our history. Regardless of what we say about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and they have their detractors, those two men honored God, and God honored them. And whenever you look at a list of the greatest presidents in our history, Abraham Lincoln is number one in everybody's list. And George Washington is pretty close behind, usually at number two. Not because they were perfect, not because they were men who, who obviously proclaimed Jesus Christ in a way that could be, you know, unequivocal, but they did honor God and, and they did seek divine guidance. We have to remember that we all have feet of clay. The book of 1 Samuel began with the birth of Samuel, who dedicated his life to honoring God. And as a result, God honored Samuel to the very day of his death. And if you remember when we read that, the whole nation of Israel mourned when Samuel died. The book ends with the ghastly and degrading death of Saul, the first king. 
who despite numerous opportunities, and we highlighted those as we went through the book, chose instead to despise God, even to the point where at the very end he went to an agent of the enemy to seek guidance. And he suffered the tragic consequences. Samuel sought the praise of God. Saul sought the praise of men. And we must never forget the eternal consequences. Well, after the break and as we begin the new year, Lord willing, we'll, we'll begin looking specifically at the life of this man, David, who was probably next to Abraham and Moses, the most famous Jew of all time, and more truly Jew, actually, because the word Jew comes from Judean, and he was a Judean, which neither Moses nor Abraham were and look at the uh, life and reign of that man.